Welcome to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy, are making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to examine the factors contributing to and find strategies to prevent teacher attrition. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is Jamie Bonato of Sacramento, California. The statistic that I've heard, and you may have as well, is that 50% of teachers leave the profession in the first five years. Though, as we'll discuss, this number is hard to verify. Even if it may be as low as 30%, the turnover for new educators is still higher than other professions, such as engineers or even lawyers. And this rate of attrition represents a loss of both money and student learning for districts. The resulting staff shortages are also often distributed unevenly, with students from lower socioeconomic backgrounds being affected the most. Fortunately, there are those who care deeply about keeping teachers teaching, with Jamie Bonato being one of them. Jamie has her PhD in educational leadership with a focus on new teacher attrition and retention, and she is also a working teacher and mentor, which made her the perfect person to talk to about this issue. My hope is that this episode can help districts, administrators, and colleagues better retain new teachers on staff, reassure new teachers that they are not alone in feeling overwhelmed, and perhaps prepare those thinking about going into the profession for the challenges ahead. Jamie and I spoke in May over Zencaster. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I'm, I'm really excited for our conversation, but if you don't mind just starting with a brief introduction of yourself, who you are, what you do uh, for the listeners. Sure. So I am a, I think this is my 19th year teaching. I teach high school math and I also mentor new teachers and I adjunct in the evenings in teacher credentialing programs. And I'm working on a book for new teachers. So that's, and I have four kids. And so that's a little bit about me. (laughs) Wow. So the reason I wanted to talk to you today was I'm I'm really fascinated with the idea of of teacher retention. I recently spoke to someone about teacher burnout. I've been reaching out to more people who are in the fields of psychology and specifically working with teachers in a mental health capacity, as well as just my own experiences and looking back and being like, you know, like, A, I'm glad I stayed in, Yeah, but those years were rough. Yeah. And just, yeah, like, and, and also cognizant of losing really great colleagues along the way. I mean, from an academic point of view, what are the main factors that are taking people out of the profession? Oh my gosh, this is my favorite question ever. So I did a study um, and I looked at just specifically California teachers, but I really think it's applicable to all teachers. The main factors are, one is it's like disillusionment. So what teachers thought it was going to be like going into teaching is not what it's like when they actually get there. So I think a lot of teachers liked school themselves 
and enjoy that. And then once you get to be a teacher, you're looking at a classroom of 30 students and maybe 10 of them like school and the rest are not as excited as you are to be there. So I think that can really wear on you. Student behavior, um, a lot of times people that are going into teaching, were not always the most well-behaved, but you know they weren't getting in trouble all the time. And so when they get to school and they realize, as a teacher, and realize there's so many behavior problems that kids are exhibiting or the kids are coming to school with so much um, going on in their personal lives that being a teacher is more than just teaching the subject matter. And so it's not what they expected. And when I talked to teachers that left, because my study was I found, I hunted down teachers that had left the profession and I asked them why they left. One of them said, you know, I wasn't just a teacher. I was a father. I was a cousin. I was a brother. I was a counselor. I was all these other, I was a nurse sometimes. I was all these other things besides just being a teacher. And it just ended up burning them out. And teachers don't have the resources, but also students don't have resources to them. So it's hard as a teacher, you you need to triage the students like, oh, I, I know the student's having an issue with this, but there's not the resources there outside of the classroom to support them. So it ends up falling on the teacher. It's kind of the, the disillusionment of thinking it's going to be one way and then getting in. Surprisingly, I thought, um, or everyone, when I would just mention it casually to non-teachers and they'd say, well, it's because teachers don't get paid enough. And I don't think teachers get paid enough, but what I found was when I asked people about the pay, they said they all knew how much they were going to get paid going into teaching because, you know, it's public knowledge. You just pull up on the district website and it tells you how much money you're going to get for however many years you've been teaching. And they said, I knew how much I was going to get paid, but once I actually started doing the job, it was so much more work than I expected that the pay didn't compensate for the amount of work that I was doing. I find it interesting because if you look at the hours a teacher works from the eight to three perspective, the 10 months a year, and you divide it by how much they're making in their district, it looks like a pretty decent hourly wage. But I would reckon that most teachers are probably working below minimum wage at some point in their career when you break down all the hours. (laughs) And I think especially in the first few years, now, I'm, I mean, I've been doing this for 19 years. I still work a ton, but I kind of found some ways, you know, to streamline my work a little bit. And I've set up systems so that it's faster for me. And thinking is and reflecting is a little more, it comes a little more naturally. So I don't have to, you know, all those in the moment decisions. But in the beginning, I mean, I remember go, getting to work at seven and not leaving until six at night. And I would still bring stuff, things home with me and working on the weekends and still feeling like you're, you're never caught up. And I think any teacher can work forever and never get everything done. But the longer you're at it, the faster you get and the more streamlined you get. And you start to realize that everything doesn't have to get done that you think has to get done. I think, too, the longer that you're at it, the more that you've settled on some of the bigger questions that really drive the anxiety. Like for me, 
the first few years was finding my teaching philosophy. Was I more about the students or more about the subject matter? Was I fact-based or skill-based? What was my language teaching philosophy? Was it authentic resources or comprehensible input? I'm still struggling with that one, but just the throwing stuff at the wall and seeing if it sticks after a few years, you realize what's going to stick and what's not. Uh, and that saves you a lot. And that also saves you like a lying in bed at night being like, am I just the worst teacher ever? By the time I hit five years, I knew the answer was no, there's much more worse teachers than me. Yeah. I think you do go through a lot of that. And especially like going back to the disillusionment, a lot of teach not all, but a lot of teachers go in thinking, you know, I'm going to make a huge difference and teachers do make a difference, but I don't think, and I think it's unfair to put so much pressure on teachers that you're the one that's going to save all these kids or you're the one that's going to make the big difference in a kid's life. I think you can make a, a big difference, but you're part of a larger community. So that pressure that teachers sometimes put on themselves is a lot and they're scared to mess up. Something that I think about too, when I, when I think about new teachers is that teaching is one of the few jobs that we have or is one of the few jobs out there where someone who's been at it for 35 years and someone who's been at it for one year are given the exact same portfolio of work. And in many cases, because of seniority, it's actually a a more difficult and varied portfolio of work for that first year teacher than that 35 year teacher who has been teaching the same courses and has settled into like the perfect schedule that they've managed to hold on to for the last 10 years. And we talk so much about scaffolding and gradual entry into skills. And yet we never once do that for our teachers. I totally agree. I was talking to someone and they said, teaching's the only profession where we throw our young to the wolves, (laughs) which is true. It's like when you're new, you get the hardest, quote, hardest to teach classes. The, um, at least as a math teacher, I see most of the new teachers get assigned the lower level or the remediation classes. And that's kind of, I think, a disservice to the new teacher because now you're struggling with teaching the content, but also the classroom management and trying to work with students who oftentimes they don't like the subject area subject. So they're like the kids that are in remedial math classes hate math because they've been, I call them the math traumatized. They've had such bad experiences with it. It's kind of this perpetuating cycle of like, you're not good at math. And then they think they're not good at math. And then you stick them in this extra math class and then you get a new teacher teaching them. So the new teacher's dealing with the kids that don't like math behavior issues. And the more experienced teachers are teaching the higher level classes. And so I think it's, it's a disservice to the new teacher because they have so much more to concentrate on than just purely teaching and honing their teaching craft, but also to the students a more seasoned teacher is probably going to have more ideas of how to reach students at a different level and might be able to help those struggling students. Not that a new teacher can't, but a veteran teacher has more, like has seen more and knows more teaching strategies to be able to help those lower level students or students that are struggling. But those aren't the teachers that are teaching the classes. I know that there have been initiatives for change and 
the district I was in, the Richmond School District, had a really amazing mentor program that I was fortunate enough to be a mentee in. And then after I'd been uh, teaching there for a while, then I became a mentor, which was really cool, both for me and I hope for my mentees. But that's, I mean, it really felt like a a band-aid on a bigger systematic issue. As as lovely as a band-aid as it was, it was very colorful. It was one of those Flintstones band-aids that I really loved getting as a kid. <laughs> but there there's clearly more systematic issues at work. Do you know of any big experiments around trying to ameliorate this? So the only one I'm mo- I'm really familiar with is in the state of California, we have an induction program. And teachers, after they their first or second year teaching, they have to go through this induction program in order to get a clear credential. So when you go through your credential program, you have a preliminary credential until you go through this next program and it's cleared. And there's a lot of requirements. There's mentoring. There's observations. I mean, it's standardized. There's been studies that show that it, that it works, but then there's studies that, you know, you can always find... People say stuff works and stuff doesn't work. I think it's really hard because having a one-size-fits-all program for all teachers, it's like having a one-size-fits-all curriculum for all students. Teachers are like students. They need different things to help them grow. So it's hard to have like a system, I think. It's hard to create a system of support that's also flexible enough to meet individual needs of teachers and new teachers. So I think that's kind of where the struggle is right now. I also think that the last thing that a second or third year teacher needs at that point is more stress. Yes. I'd be all all for that if it meant that when you're going through your induction, at least in the secondary model, that was a block, like that was a class. So rather than teaching seven, you taught six and that seventh was to work on the induction reflection or to go observe other teachers or meet with your mentor or whatever it is that you needed to do. But to add that on just seems cruel. I definitely agree with you. And it's hard because I am a mentor. And so I, I, and in an induction program. And so I want to help my mentees as much as possible, but then I also am trying to take stuff off their plate. It's like they're already working more hours than any other teachers are, and then they have all these extra requirements on them. So we got to take something away from them. In some other aspect, I think having, you know, not teaching as many classes would would be awesome and having that extra time. I mean, there's probably reasons that we can't do that because then it wouldn't be fair to the other teachers who have to teach. <laughs> I'm just thinking of reasons that people would say that it wouldn't work. I, my first thought was just money because then you'd, if for every seven induction teachers, then that's a new position that's now been created when you take them out for one class. Yeah, but I, sometimes I feel like it's worth it. I mean, because of the money we're spending on the induction program and people running the programs and people monitoring the programs and mentors in some programs get paid and supervisors are getting paid. If we can kind of redirect those funds and give the new teachers a little bit of breathing space and time to reflect, I think that's when you become 
better at your craft is when you have a chance to stop and think about what you're doing and what's happening in your classroom and then what you can change. But the first few years, it's going so fast, you don't have time to actually think about what you're doing. And then when you're when you're forced to do it, it's more of a chore. It's like, okay, what's this box I have to check to say that I did think about this and just to pass my induction program. Do we have stats on how expensive it is for a district to lose teachers? No, I can't tell you like a, a price off the top of my head. I'd have to go back and look it up. But it's very expensive for districts to lose teachers because they have to, um, a lot of times they put teachers through new, tra- new training, like new teacher training or whatever, you know, before school starts, like here's how our district runs. They also have to go through the hiring process, which costs money. They have to um, advertise for the jobs. And then the loss in student learning, when new teachers keep turning over, now we keep having all these new teachers who are back in the same spot learning everything over again. And it's shown that, you know, teachers after the first couple of years is when they start to hit their groove. A teacher in their third or fourth year might be more effective than a first year teacher. So school districts are losing money, but they're also losing student learning when we have teachers leaving the profession. It's like the revolving door of teachers. Not to mention, I imagine a lot of institutional knowledge just goes out the door when you've you've got a teacher leaving the profession. Yes. So it is a problem and it's pretty costly. So take that money, give it to the induction student. <laughs> <laughs> Hire me as a superintendent of California. Don't worry. I am not qualified. <laughs> so in terms of academic studies, because I know that you are you have your doctorate. What kind of studies are out there looking at the issue of teacher retention? There are a lot. Well, I don't think enough. And they're kind of mixed. And so, I mean, one, Linda Darling-Hammond, she's out of Stanford. She does a lot of research. And the big there's a big statistic thrown around, at least in the U.S., that um, something like 50% of new teachers leave within the first five years. And it's really hard, and I found this was really hard, um, to actually figure out how many teachers really are leaving because we don't have a great record-keeping system of did you just leave that school in the district or did you leave teaching altogether? So it's hard to really nail down how many people really are leaving and where they're going. And are are they staying in education or not? And there's lots of ideas on how to retain teachers. But most of them cost time and money, and so I think that's why they're not being implemented. What would you say are your your top retention strategies that you would implement if you were in charge? I think giving teachers a really great teacher education is number one. And so um, my dream is, and this is happening in some places, is to have a teacher resident, like residency schools, kind of like teaching hospitals where... Like near my house, there's a teaching hospital. Um, It's affiliated with the University of California. And they have doctors there, but then they also have the residents. And so the doctors are assessing patients, but a resident will come with them and work alongside of the doctors. 
And then they will start to, you know, make their own assessments under the guidance of someone who's, who's been a doctor for a long time. And then eventually they'll start to make the decisions. And so I saw this, my son was in the hospital one morning a few years ago. And during the morning rounds, one doctor would come by and he would have five like residents near him. And the five of them would look at him, my son, look at what was going on with him. And they would all discuss, okay, what's the next step? What should we do? And I kind of think that would be really cool in a school where if we had teaching schools where you had um, master teachers and then you had residents who would go through an observation phase and then teach alongside the teacher and then eventually start to take over the classes, kind of like a student teaching program, but a lot more intense and give the resident teachers, a broader overview of like all like different teachers. So you had access to different grade levels or um, different teaching philosophies or different master teachers. So, so that's my little, my that's my dream of how I would love to teach teachers. I think the, the group aspect of it as well, where you're not just bouncing ideas off of your mentor teacher who is also your evaluator, but that your first, you know, it's that think pair share. Exactly. In the the system we have set up now as student teachers, there's really not the pair discussion before you're supposed to share out with your mentor teacher. So that would be, I would say really good teacher training program. And, um, I love the idea of reducing like the expectations during the first, probably two to three years of a teacher's, um, teaching. So, like I would, what I suggest, one recommendation I have specifically for principals is don't like ban your new teachers from being club advisors or being coaches or, but advise them not to do that. Like try to persuade them not to do that and don't hold that against them when you're thinking of rehiring them. I, I think you should be just focusing on teaching, not all these other things. So, I mean, if the teacher wants to take it on, great, but don't, I don't like the pressure a lot of new teachers feel. And I felt it when I was a new teacher, like I have to join all these committees. If the principal asks me to be on a committee, I need to do it. If they want me to advise a club, I better do it or I'm not going to get hired next year. So my number three would be resources for students. So not just resources for new teachers, but one thing that my study participants kept saying is the students need more support. Like they need more emotional support. They have, I mean, they're going through trauma. They're dealing with lots of things at home and outside of the classroom that they bring into the classroom. And teachers don't always have the capacity. I know I don't have the capacity to deal with all of that. Um, I'm not a counselor. You know, I'm a trained teacher, not a trained counselor. And so another um, thing that I think could help with teacher retention is getting more resources and support for students. That way teachers don't have to take on the burden of all those extra hats, the counseling hat, the um, parent hats. I mean, they still will just naturally because teachers are helpers. But I think that would help take some of the pressure off and allow teachers to really focus on teaching. What would you say for people that want to be mentors to young teachers that they see in their building? I and a, and a lot of teachers that I know have always, you know, popped in and been like, if you need anything, I'm here. And I've been on the receiving end of that. But I, I didn't always take advantage of that. Are there any kind of tips and tricks for 
making it more than just what seems like a hollow offer? One thing that I do, and I think this is more just, I don't know if I do this on purpose, but I learn so much from new teachers. Like I think that I love having student teachers and I love mentoring teachers because I think I learn more from them than they might learn from me. I'm there to support them, but I also am getting so many new ideas. So sometimes just for my own curiosity, but also to develop relationships, I'll ask a new teacher their opinion on something. So if I'm teaching a lesson, I'll say, hey, what what do you think of this? Or how could I get students more engaged in this? Or I especially go to new teachers for technology. And I'm kind of, I'm getting to the age where I'm not as hip anymore. And so I don't know the latest trends. So I ask the new teacher, like, can you think of a way that I can connect more with my students? So I usually ask them for help. Well, if they feel comfortable sharing with me, then they might feel like it's okay for them to come ask me for help if I'm asking them for help. And for administrators, and you you talked a little bit about before, you know, principals maybe letting off on some of the more incredibly outrageous expectations of extracurriculars. What else do you think administrators can do? I think administrators, if there is not a mentor already set up, if an administrator can find someone on campus that they think would be make a great mentor, and they know their staff better than most people. I mean, they can see and they've worked with them. So if they have a new teacher come on campus, maybe just setting them up or kind of fostering a relationship, a mentoring relationship with someone on campus that they think might jive together. And I know principals can't always like pay someone, a mentor, but even giving like, um, if they can find a mentor relationship, maybe giving them release time to work together or to go out on observations together. So that's one thing. Another thing is principals just showing interest in their new teachers. So a lot of new teachers say that they don't feel supported by administration. And I think just showing an interest, finding out what's happening in their classroom and showing an interest and then getting them any resources they can to support that. It's crazy too, because when you're at your most financially insecure the beginning of your career, you're expected to fund a whole, a whole elementary school classroom all by yourself. (laughs) Yes. I couldn't imagine that. So I always, I mean, one suggestion for principals is sometimes principals know where there's a stash of stuff. They might know like, oh, there's a storage closet and I know it has a bunch of like whatever's just giving that to the new teacher or even doing like a hosting a swap meet kind of where everyone brings like, say you have three staplers. Well, can you bring one to give to the new teacher random pens or something like that? Like just, just any little thing for a classroom can help out. I had a a department head who was fantastic. And if she knew that we were getting a new teacher, either at like the semester changeover or uh, in September, she would ahead of time fill in a supply order including like projector and chart paper and all that stuff. So that when that new teacher showed up, he, she, they didn't need to ask for anything. The department chair just said, here is what, here are the basics. Let me know if you need more. Because I mean, it took me like four years before I even realized that there were order forms. I just, I guess I imagined that the stapler fairy just dropped stuff off off in the supply closet. Like (laughs) someone was ordering, right? When you're meeting with new teachers, whether as a mentor 
or as your role as an adjunct in a teacher prep program, what are the, you know, if there's only a few things that they can remember from your advice, what are you hoping that they take away? Yeah, I just hope that they're learners. That's what I encourage them to always be learning and to be staying fresh and trying new things in their classroom. And also to cut themselves some slack. Like that's another thing is they're not going to be perfect. And it's okay for their students to see them learning and trying new things also. And it's okay to ask for help. Like ask people for help. Don't reinvent the wheel. Go find something that's already been done well and use it or change it to work for you. Thank you so much for taking the time to to talk to me and talk to the listeners about this. I think this is something that we should all be thinking about, whether we're at the beginning and we or we don't want to leave the profession or we're seeing our colleagues and we want to keep them there. So thanks for the research that you do and the work that you do. Thanks. I learned, actually, you gave me a lot to think about. So um, I learned a lot from you today. Thank you. This episode will not self-destruct in five seconds, but will remain available on your preferred podcasting platform. More details about this episode, links to resources or people we mentioned, and information in general about the podcast and its mission can be found at lessonimpossible.com. If you enjoy the podcast, you can help other listeners discover it by rating and reviewing on iTunes, forwarding it to a colleague, or posting the link in your favorite educational chat. This has been Less Than Impossible, and I was your host, Aviva Levin.